felt really terrified being here. I felt like I didn't quite know where I fit in radio and what kind of work I wanted to do, and felt like all of a sudden the bottom had fallen out underneath me, and I'd always kind of had a sense of I knew where I was going or what I wanted, and I lost that sense for a period of a couple of years. I think Death, Sex, and Money was a complete reaction to that. Like, you hear the tape when you're like, I don't know what this show is, but that is the kind of tape that I want. You know, pause before an answer and then saying the thing that you, you know, just haven't articulated before. Yeah, at that time, there were no legal abortions. You could only get a, a, an illegal abortion. And that's not a pretty sight. And there's nothing but shame connected to that. You're listening to She Does, a show that features women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women arrived at where they are today. So we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Elaine. And I'm Sarah. And today, we'd like to introduce you to Anna Sale. She is the host and managing editor of Death, Sex, and Money, one of WNYC's original podcasts, along with Radio Lab, Freakonomics, The Sporkful. Does that say that word, Sporkful? No, okay. That soundbite you heard in the introduction was actually from an episode of Death, Sex, and Money. The voice was actress Ellen Bernstein, who in this episode, which is titled Lessons on Survival, reveals intimate parts of her life to Anna. We've been watching Death, Sex, and Money climb to the top of the podcast charts. The show was named Best of 2014 by iTunes in the new podcast category and top BuzzFeed list for 12 new podcasts that will make you a better human. Anna invited me up to the WNYC studios to do this interview. Thank you for the coffee. Oh, yeah, man. Since that, I was like, yes, because WNYC has, like, terrible coffee, but I drink it. Okay, now you're in charge. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we're recording? Mm-hmm. Okay. But we met a couple years ago through mutual friends who knew we'd most likely get along due to a pretty big connection we feel strongly about, our home state of West Virginia. So I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, which brings up a lot of images for people that are not what my kind of environment was like growing up. Of course people cannot contribute to the nation if they are never taught to read or write. That's Lyndon B. Johnson. He was announcing the official war on poverty, which was pretty focused on Appalachia, the region that Anna and I are both from. If their life is spent in hopeless poverty, just drawing a welfare check. I grew up in a very kind of typical American suburban environment, went to like a fancy public school, and I went to the Unitarian Church growing up. That was populated by a bunch of atheist engineers who'd moved to town to work for the chemical company. We went to church a lot, you know, and and Sunday school was studying Susan B. Anthony and the Civil Rights Movement. Being one of five daughters, every book report I had to do had to do something with, like, women's rights and the women's movement. I wasn't one of those kids who thought I wanted to be a newspaper woman, you know, from growing up. Just two hours ago... Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These so weird. I have this, like, very visceral memory. I must have been in, like, fourth grade. 
the Iraq War, and I can remember debating it before school in the gym with, like, my neighbor, J.L. Hart. And I remember feeling this, like, surge of, like, energy around talking about, like, what was happening. war against Kuwait tonight. The battle has been joined. That actually, like, led to a period of confusion in my life. <laughs> I was always kind of trying to figure out if I was, like, the bookish person who observed from a distance or the person who felt more energized by being in the middle of things. It wasn't until after college that I sort of settled that out. Anna attended Stanford from 1999 to 2003, a time when Silicon Valley was thriving, becoming what it is today, the mecca for technology startups and home to venture capitalists. The dot-com bubble, as most booms do, affected people in different ways. Anna was busy leading protests. She was an activist, fighting for underpaid campus workers. We did a sleep out outside the president's office one year. There was a hunger strike the spring of my senior year, and I was one of the negotiators with the president. And we got some concessions. I can remember, like, as a freshman, like, looking around and realizing, like, oh, my God, people are quitting college as sophomores to try to, like, get an IPO. And so I was like, well, I'm from West Virginia, where, like, it matters if I go home, and it matters that I'm going to reverse the brain drain. And, and I can remember feeling, like, resentment of, you know, per the parades of my peers who, you know, got great educations at our high school and left and never looked back. I can remember feeling like, don't you appreciate this place and what it gave us. And it felt like it was my home, even though I'd lived in California for a couple of years. And I still think of it as home. I love West Virginia. You don't grow up being a snob. Like, you don't grow up being dismissive of people who are poor or people who struggle. You get that, like, there is such a value to small communities that take care of each other. They're often not portrayed fairly or with kindness in the media. and. I think a lot of that is just straight-up classism. I appreciate that I have a very a well-honed and honorable <laughs> detector of snobs. I think that is the most original, wonderful statement I've ever laid ears on. <laughs> it's very, it's a very confident way of saying I can sniff out a a, a snobby, snotty person with their nose up in the air. Just because you're not from a city doesn't mean, you know, you're not worth something. I can also relate to that. Okay, so obviously Anna feels very connected to home, which is West Virginia. But I know she lives in New York now. So what happened in between? Well, to begin with, she did move back. She moved back to West Virginia. I think why activism ended up not fitting is because I'm not an ideologue. And so when my first job out of college was working for the Sierra Club in West Virginia, which was, I thought would be like a way to, you know, deal with the realities on the ground of the effects of coal mining and timbering. But it ended up, to me, feeling a bit like there's a campaign going on in Washington. This is what we need to get done. To me, environmental issues in West Virginia are complicated. And so I kept getting stuck in these moments when I wanted to, you know, have a conversation and hear what various kind of players had to say, and that wasn't my job. 
was what kind of pulled me into journalism. When I thought about journalism when I was in you know, high school, college, it felt like when you're a journalist, you are basically surrendering your right to be an actor. You know, you're the person with the notebook who can't have any passion. And then I found, after being an activist, and then having the experience of being a journalist covering politics, where, like, you get to, like, elbow your way to the front of the scrum of reporters and ask the governor a question, that's, like, and very active practice. So this became Anna's life. For the next four years, she was a general assignment reporter at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. She says she appreciates this time because starting at a smaller station gave her room to find her voice, to be creative, and to really have a lot of control at an early stage. Lucky for all of us, she found her passion in radio. I love radio. And I think it's because of the emotional content and voices. Like, I think that intimacy I just loved. And I loved radio growing up. The other stations where I worked, it was both public television and, and radio. Television has a whole different ability to kind of like ramp up the intensity of the point you're trying to make. There's just less room for nuance. I like things that are complicated. One opportunity that I had being in West Virginia that was incredible was I got to be embedded with the Air National Guard on a deployment to Afghanistan. There was a husband deploying on my way out, and I interviewed him about family and child care because he was going to see his wife for three days in Afghanistan, and then she was coming back with me. And so I interviewed her about what it is to be two people who are being deployed in war zones when you have a small kid. You know, it was basically like embedding local reporters with the local National Guard unit to tell the story of what happens when they go to war, and then I come back with this story about, like, these two people talking about their marriage, you know? I think that's an important story, and so knowing that has, like, helped me kind of find my way to the kinds of stories and, and, and to the show that I that I want to do. That I feel like I, I am in the best position to do because these are the stories that I really care about and that I want to share. I love that. Because, yeah, once you figure out the type of stories that you're drawn to, and the more you tell them, the better you get at telling them, and the better, the better you can get people to open up to tell them, which is... So important. And to advocate for them. Because, like, when you're telling a story that's, like, about things that are slightly off whatever's on the front page, you have to advocate for why this is worth somebody's time. What's your least favorite type of story to report on? My least favorite type of story to report on is pack journalism, where it's limited access, where you feel like you're doing your job because you're at the press event where every other person has sent a reporter. That's like what you have to do when you're covering a beat because you're demonstrating you're a player to your colleagues, but you're also demonstrating to your sources that you're going to be there. For me, when you're at that press conference, when some candidate sex scandal has blown up and you're sitting on the floor with your elbow over somebody's knee and like, you know, you've had to force your microphone onto a podium to get the one soundbite that everybody is going to also be using, like... <laughs> it's just like, it's like not, it's, it's, that's just not inspiring to me. 
that being said, like when you're in that place and you can shout the question to the person who everybody is, you know, needing to hear answers from, you can shout the question that they answer like that matters. Size of the deficit, Tom Heckel worked for $5 billion over the next two years. The governor and legislature are spending about $150 million less this month. Anna made the move from West Virginia to Connecticut to work for Connecticut Public Radio. But after one year, she and her husband decided to move to New York City. But she wasn't quite prepared for what was to come in her professional and personal life. I'd had a lot of good luck, and then when I moved to New York City, I, I quickly got work, which was which is also amazing. But it, like, I, I felt really terrified being here. I felt like I didn't quite know where I fit in radio and what kind of work I wanted to do. And my ex-husband was had been doing one thing, and then we moved to New York for him to go to art school. And so we were in this major period of change, and and it just felt like everything was sort of like becoming less secure and stable, and it was terrifying, and. Um, and I didn't know what to do to fix it. First, like, I, I blamed New York City. So I rebelled against New York City existentially, and then I blamed... Night. It was my marriage that was the problem, and then we ended the marriage, and then I blamed. But then it's like, okay, well, I'm still in New York City, and it's totally my decision about whether to leave or go. And that's when I had to just kind of figure out, like, what is it that you're after, Anna? Like, you can't, you can't keep blaming these external things. I did a lot of stuff because I was trying to figure out how to make myself feel like I was back on a track. So it was a lot of exploring. I mean, it, that was when I was like, I need to go to every swing state and I need to talk to voters and did road trips and, and did like the 2012 election was like constant travel. This was a hard time for Anna, mostly because of her nature. She's competitive, she's motivated, and she's always had a plan. From an early age, like I did well in school, that became very, part of my, very much part of my identity. Like I do well at things. That's probably why when I had a hard time in life, like it was extra difficult because part of my identity was like, I am highly competent. <laughs> what, what is the deal? But she's the first one to acknowledge that her competitive spirit is not always a positive thing. So I'm competitive, but it like comes out in like board games. It comes out in like, you know, like Scrabble, the way that I think it's like not great. And I'm actively trying to like reprogram. I really like being a mentor to younger radio producers. I find a lot of joy in that. I like like talking about what I've learned and and like I really like connecting people who need help. Um, I find that that spirit of like, uh, generosity is not as um, pronounced when it comes to people who are closer in my peer to my peer group, like in terms of age. Like that's where I get competitive. And I think that that's just like ugly. And I think that that's still pretty common. Like 
And I don't know if there's like this sense of like there's only room for like one female star, um, whereas you can have a bunch of dude stars. I think that's still part of the sense, but like I think that's changing. So I'm trying to like actively retell that story to myself so I don't get competitive in ways that are counterproductive. Anna kept powering through, though. She hadn't figured it all out yet, but she kept herself busy with reporting. She became a regular voice on WNYC. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with us now, Anna Sale, national political reporter for our politics website, itsafreecountry.org. We've been following her journey through the swing states of Iowa, Colorado, Wisconsin, and finally Ohio, and now back to our studio. Hi, Anna. Hi. So how is Ohio different from the other swing states that you visited that we talked about on the show in the last few weeks? Well, Ohio is just infinitely fascinating because you really have so many things going on there. You've got Appalachian counties, you've got industrial counties, you've got big urban centers, and you've got... The part of covering campaigns that I loved was cornering voters, pulling out what they cared about and where that was coming from and what was happening in their lives. The main story I needed to tell was who's up, who's down, why, the kind of frame of like what political consultants are saying. And then you use a kind of piece of tape from a voter to say, see, the middle class is frustrated. Four years later. And so I thought, I found more sort of... You know, the whole point of elections is to like pause and look at like how are our lives going? And so I was, I just, I remember feeling like, why do we have to wait every four years to care how people's lives are going for that to be a story, you know? In January 2013, Anna received an unexpected email from WMYC. The email said, We're looking for new show ideas. We want to know. We know we have talented people in the building. Send us your ideas. There's going to be a contest, and the winners of the contest will get to pilot their ideas. So it was like the dream memo from your boss who's like, we want to know what you really want to be doing. Professionally, I was a little bit, like, itchy looking for something. And personally, I had just gotten divorced. I was in a long-distance relationship. I didn't know if New York was the place where I was supposed to be. I think death, sex, and money was a complete reaction to that. This is Death, Sex, and Money. They don't get it. I'm dead. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Look, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. And need to talk about more. Money can't buy happiness. It is happiness. I'm Anna Sale. I wanted to have a show where there was an acknowledgement that sometimes you run out of answers and it just helps to listen in on somebody talking about a period of vulnerability or transition or you know, how they navigated big questions. And this name, death, sex, and money was like, let's be real. Like, these are these are the things, the three things that we actually really freak out about. You know, it's like we're all going to die. We all want to feel love and be loved um, and love. And we all don't know where we stand and we want to survive with money. I had a story, my very first story in This American Life, which was like an enormous deal for me. And I like burst out crying when I heard Ira Glass say my name over the radio. And so that was an enormous deal. And that was happening just as the show was launching. Death, Sex and Money's first episode was released on May 6, 2014. 
It debuted on the iTunes charts at number 47, but within one week, it rose to number one. I'm Anna Sale, the host of Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. On our next show, Jane Fonda describes the shock of being alone when her marriage to Ted Turner ended. I moved into my daughter's house in Atlanta. I was all by myself, which after Ted, the silence was deafening. And I remember standing in the middle of this little bed. One of my favorite episodes was with Dominique Foxworth, a revealing conversation about male identity and the pressure of being a black professional football player. Women who wouldn't necessarily be interested in you as kind of a long-term relationship type of person, they're like, well, this big kind of like mandingo, strong black man, let's experiment with that and see what this is all about, which huh. obviously we didn't... Were you aware of that at the time or, or looking back? Um, I think I was aware of it at the time. I want to hear a little bit about the process. I'm sure people will be curious about the process of making Death, Sex, and Money. How do you choose the people? Art of the interview for you? Like, what are some things you've learned that you could pass on? Choosing stories is tricky. We have guests who are both well-known. Then we have guests who are not celebrities. Um, And so when you're booking those and casting those episodes, you have two separate processes to go through with with people who are well-known, who've done a lot of media, whose stories are out there. You're looking for the angle that's not been, you know, explored. And making that pitch is delicate in a way that they'll agree to it. Like, you know, tell me this very personal story that you haven't told anyone. You know, thanks, Anna. Like, that's not always the best way to book an interview. Actually applies. You should have called your mother more often. This is Dan Savage, host of the popular podcast, Savage Love. My mother was diagnosed with a terminal illness. She was given five years to live, and then when the five years ran out, she was given two more to live, and she was dead six weeks later. And so I have, you know, I have massive regrets. Uh, There are things that I wish that I could do for her that I can't. I'm interested in following up with people that maybe you had kind of were in the zeitgeist in a moment but you're sort of like what happened to that person you're trying to break into the music business and it's not just a year it's not just two years it's it's year three year four year five yeah when you think of yourself when you were when you were that age i mean you're in your early 30s were you confident or were you still sort of looking for some signs from the world that you were going to be okay well you know i'm not into like false humility And that man, that's Bill Withers. So certain things you don't try if you don't think you can do it. The thing that, like, I just love is is when you're in the depths of an interview and you're figuring out how to pull someone out and and you can feel it when when it feels like they're saying something that they aren't sure they've had heard before. I think one of the best examples of this is, this is Sarah, by the way, when Anna interviews Lawrence Bartley, who killed somebody at the age of 17. The episode is called, I Killed Someone, Now I Have Three Kids. You have to listen to it. If the family of the young man, the 15-year-old who died, Mm -hmm. hears this interview, what do you want to make sure they hear you say? (sighs) I would tell him that. I'm sorry. I would say... I'm sorry. It's okay. Basically, this argument for the show of, like, it's helpful to hear people's stories, 
but we're not going to get to any stage of enlightenment where we're all champions of, you know, empowered decision making. When you dive deep into people's personal stories, it's like, this is when I was blind and couldn't see, and this is when I was saved. And the show, Death, Sex, Money is like, no, like, we're all, we're all okay, but we're all figuring this out. getting out of the studio. Your imagination is constrained by where you're working every day. And so I think it's important to not just be booking interviews out of my desk in New York. I think this is because of I'm from not from New York. Like, I really want the show to not just mirror back the urban experience to people. There's a lot of really incredible stories and, like, questions that are being answered in different ways in other kinds of communities about, like, the trade-offs between work opportunities and what you can earn in terms of money. Like, I think that that is such a rich place to go. Like, I was obsessed with the LeBron story, like, when LeBron decided to go back to Cleveland. It's like, there's so much there to kind of just ponder and think about and what does it mean and... Um, so is he going to be a guest? I would love, to, I would love LeBron. You're invited anytime. Uh, I doubt LeBron will <laughs> listen to this podcast. <laughs> I think he maybe, might not be your target demo. <laughs> public face of death, sex, and money, and sometimes that means she has to answer her own hard questions. Recently, her private life and struggling long-distance relationship became part of the show. We should also mention that this is the story that was featured on This American Life. This is Arthur. Here goes. The love of my life, Miss Anna Sale, lives in New York City. We've known each other for two years and three months. For most of that time, I was finishing my ecology PhD at the University of Wyoming. Our breakup was one of those classic, I love you, but this isn't going to work, breakups. Our version was, we're in our 30s, I'm a reporter in the city, you study wildlife in Wyoming. This doesn't have a future. We'd agreed. But then Arthur changed his mind. I didn't. Things had just gotten too hard, and they had gotten too... Heavy. Heavy. That's when Arthur decided to enlist the help of an 82-year-old retired politician. He thought it would make me laugh. I knew Al Simpson as a I think the hardest thing was like the decision to talk about my personal life and my relationship and like name my partner and like acknowledge that we've gone through difficult periods. Arthur told Al Simpson all about why we'd split up. This means that Anna and I have mostly dated long distance. I love Wyoming. There's like that little voice in the back of your head. Your life could like blow up again, Anna. Remember how like hard it was on Facebook to figure out how to like subtly hint at people that like you were divorced? It's going to be a whole different ball of wax if you're like have this podcast built around this like personality and this relationship. Eyes wide open. My mistake. 
Senator Simpson, Senator Simpson I've poured I've poured, this is the one, I've poured my years. heart and soul into Wyoming for six years. I hope you will consider this as a favor for a man who's risked it all for that place. Senator, would you give Anna a call on my behalf? That's Ann Simpson, Al's wife of 60 years. Okay, what did you, when you first read that, what No, did you I just think? thought it was the, the oddity of the ages. And I, I looked at it, put it away. And then it sounds like your first husband was an artist. or mm-hmm. So there's a balance there that you have to mm-hmm. do if two you know, artists or journalists are married. It's a, it's a really uh, delicate balance you have to make <laughs> to, not, to not let it consume your life, uh-huh. essentially. Um, and so, but now your fiancé is in something totally different. How do you think that those two dynamics will work in your life? It's interesting because, like, Arthur, my fiancé, is not um, fiancé. He is not in media or um, he's a scientist. He's an ecologist. It's nice that we're not competing for the same space. And the other, like, amazing thing about his life is he has to be in nature to do field work. And so that's like this built in, not only like we have to figure out how to navigate time apart, but it also creates a kind of like pattern and a routine around time when you know you have like, well, oh, this is the time when I can do all that stuff that's going to take a lot of time and, you know, would be hard if we were in the apartment together, you know, or when I'm going to like watch Scandal. Anna is now 34. She's in her nesting mode, as she put it. And she's excited about WNYC featuring more female-hosted podcasts. When I started working on Death, Sex, and Money, which was like 2013, I think the landscape was very different than it is now. and It's changed a lot just in the last year and a half. Podcasting, the idea was not only is it male-dominated, and you can still see that when you look at the top podcast and iTunes top charts. Um, but listeners are male dominated. Like listeners are primarily male, and people would say that to me, like, "Who are you targeting?" Like, you know, you want listeners. Dudes listen to podcasts. At the same time, when I was putting together Death, Sex, and Money, I was really trying to be really deliberate around making sure I wasn't thinking of it as like a woman's show or a show where we talk about women's stories or the women's view on things. There's a lot happening, you know, no matter what your sexuality or your gender, like there's a lot happening that's that's shifting the ways that we think about what the stories of our lives are in, in the U.S. But I also think like just just making the like base assumption when you're doing a story that like this woman's story is important and the details of this woman's story is important given the history of women in this country in the past hundred years. Like, that's still, like, a radical thing. So it feels good to be a part of that. Cool. Well, I don't have anything else. That was fantastic. Okay, good. awesome. Good. I loved it. Good. Let me just make me save it. Visit shedoespodcast.com for notes on the show. Thanks to our sound designer, Billy Wrasnick, and thank you so much to our special guest this week, Anna Sale, for sitting down with us to do this interview. My stomach is going crazy. Yeah, is that the coffee? I think that's the coffee. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) The music you heard in today's episode is by Cassie Lopez, Tiny Folk, and Hudson. Join us next Wednesday, February 18th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Google Hangout 
where you get to ask Anna your questions. Visit our website for more detailed instructions. This is episode three of She Does, and if you've been with us from the beginning, thank you so much. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And please, please, please rate and review us so that we can bring you more episodes. Join us in two weeks for an interview with Deborah Granick, the writer and director of Academy Award-nominated Winter's Bone, which stars a young Jennifer Lawrence. See you on the Googs next week. Bye. Yeah.